Hey there dudes and dudettes, and welcome to Extreme Movie Reviews, where the takes are as extreme as literally any product you could have bought in the 90s. It's totally time to set your Tamagotchis down, pick up your pogs off of the floor, sit back, and relax for a radical time with your host. It's Steve, and today we will be checking out a classic from my childhood. You already know from the title of the episode, 1993's Mrs. Doubtfire. In case you have never seen the movie, or for some reason have forgotten what it is about, the plot synopsis goes something like this. Daniel Hillard, played by Robin Williams, is a talented but disenfranchised voice actor, father of three, and husband to one. Daniel once again loses his job. The same day he throws an over-the-top surprise birthday party for his eldest son against his wife's wishes, and when she finds out, it's the last straw for a relationship that she clearly has not been invested in for some time now. Due to Daniel's current job situation, he only receives visitation rights with his children for one day a week. Daniel must get all aspects of his life in order and come to terms with his separation in order to assure that he remains a large part of his beloved kids' lives. They mean the world to Daniel, and even three months of seeing them once a day would be hell. When he finds out his wife is looking for a nanny, Daniel concocts a plan to remain a part of his family's everyday life as an elderly female nanny. But... For how long can he keep up the charade without anyone finding out? Mrs. Doubtfire is rated PG. It's a family comedy with a runtime of two hours and five minutes. Let's start out by finding out what the audience and critics thought of the movie. What do you think the ratings look like? In case this is your first time listening, in this section I will explain a little bit about how I came to my guesses for three different ratings on the movie at hand. I'll look at both the audience and critic scores on Rotten Tomatoes as well as what the IMDb score is. First up will be the Rotten Tomatoes scores, which in their simplest form are a percentage, so out of 100, of people who gave the movie a thumbs up. Obviously, the higher, the better. Rotten Tomatoes keeps track of critics' ratings and audience ratings separately, so I like to take a look at both of them as they tend to help tell a story about the type of movie it is and, of course, how it was received. Let's begin by looking at the audience score. I hesitate to go too high with this rating because you don't hear people mention this movie too often anymore, and the last time that I feel like I heard the movie mentioned, it wasn't necessarily a good thing in terms of modern culture. I'll guess 75%. With over 250,000 ratings, the actual audience score is 77%. The movie received an average rating of 3.9 out of 5 from the audience. I think the audience got this movie right. Now let's find out what the critics think of Mrs. Doubtfire. So obviously, I've watched the movie recently, and with a more critical eye than any time I would have as a kid. And, to be frank, I was surprised at how well made of a movie it is. It is a two-hour-long kids' comedy, however, and I could see some critics having an issue with the length. When making my guess, my mind was all over the place, and I was thinking that anywhere from the 60s to the 80s wouldn't shock me, so I decided to guess 75% again, in hopes that one of the two guesses for Rotten Tomatoes would be really close. 
I got close once, let's see how I did this time. Out of 52 reviews from the critics, 71% of them would recommend the movie. Definitely not a shock, but I am a little surprised that, on average, the critics gave the movie a 5.9 out of 10. I can confidently say I think I'll end up with a rather significantly higher score than that with my official podcast score. Now let's check out the IMDb score, which is a score out of 10. So this score differs than the percentages given on the Rotten Tomatoes scores by giving us an immediate idea of how good a movie is based upon the general consensus. Mrs. Doubtfire is no doubt a classic movie, so there should be a solid amount of 9s and 10s, and I can't imagine many would rate it less than a 4. So I'm definitely going to skew the rating towards the higher end, I'll guess a 7 out of 10. And the official IMDb score is 7 out of 10. That is very exciting. I don't, I don't, um, I don't think that I've ever guessed like right on the score before. I think that's my first time. Popped my cherry. One thing that I like about IMDb is that they have some nice breakdowns for these scores. And I've got to hand it to myself. I read the breakdowns like a book. Just over 4% of people gave the movie a 4 or less. 1.3% of them giving it a 2 or a 1, and nearly 18% of people gave it a 9 or a 10. Almost one-third of people gave it a 7. This may be the highest percentage of 7s that I have ever seen. So, what does this all tell us? Well, clearly it's a solid movie that the majority of people liked, and even those who didn't end up liking it still found it to be at least an average viewing experience. My guess would be that if you asked someone who isn't a fan of the movie if they liked it, they would give you a shrug and say it was okay. And I think that's a credit to this movie because given the premise, they really could have made an annoying, over-the-top, Robin Williams performance type of movie. But as we will soon see, they kept those moments in check, even if this movie was probably written with him specifically in mind. I won't be shocked if we find that to be the case when it comes to the interesting facts portion. I think it's time to give my opinion of the movie. So like, do you recommend the movie? I have already introduced the movie and essentially clued you into my general thoughts on it, so I'll keep this section short today. What would I rate this movie out of five stars? Now, you may wonder, why do you give this movie a rating out of five stars if you also have a rating out of ten for your official podcast score, Steve? The idea behind it is that this isn't me looking at the movie critically. This is largely a reflection of like how enjoyable I found a movie to be for one reason or another. There is no system. It's just, hey friend, what'd you think about that Mrs. Doubtfire movie? And then me responding, I'd give it four out of five stars. I really liked the movie. I tried my darndest to give it less than four stars, but there simply isn't much to complain about. Now, Let's look at some internet reviews, see what the people and the critics had to say about it. Do you think the fans and the critics gave it some props reviews or what? Let's start off by looking at what the critics had to say. And let's begin with a negative review. It seems that a certain gentleman, Ken Hank, always gives movies a thumbs down. And last year when I began this process, I believe he had a pretty funny review, or maybe I just used his for many of the first reviews. So it's become a bit of a hobby, and without any hilarious ones to read, I think his is as good as I'm going to find. Ken Hank of Mountain Express gave the movie a 2 out of 5, and he said, Tedious beyond words. 
I really wish he had elaborated more because I had concerns coming into watching this for the first time in probably over 15 years that I might find the movie tedious. If I had to guess, my thoughts are that he found it to be repetitive and he isn't a fan of Robin Williams' humor. Although I think they really keep those moments of the movie short, if it's something that bothers you, I could see those moments seething into one's brain and preventing them from enjoying the wholesome story that is at hand. I think that moves really nicely into this next review, which comes from Frank Ockling of Movie Eye, who gave it a 3 out of 5 and said, An overreactive, cheeky costume comedy highlighted by the inspired zaniness of Robin Williams. The reason I think that highlights my viewpoint of the movie is because of that exact word, highlight. It is an excellent way to describe how Robin Williams was used in the movie. He accentuates the movie instead of being an overbearing presence. I will wrap up the critics with a perfect 10 out of 10 from Mike Massey of Gone with the Twins, who said, A somewhat grotesque take on Mary Poppins, this picture has an attitude and style all its own. I'll mention, I've also seen others liken the movie of that to Tootsie. I'm only vaguely familiar with both of those properties, but I found those insights to be interesting nonetheless. Now, let's see if we cannot dig up any gold from the audience reviews. Without even looking, I can tell you there will be plenty perfect scores that say something along the lines of, Robin Williams is so good. Or, this is a classic. So I will be passing over those, and after going through the first page, yep, plenty of those. However, you don't come across such elegant reviews as George M's review every day. He gave it five stars. You're not ready for what he said, but too bad. Here I go. George said, six bags. Funny how some of the best James Bond's movies aren't James Bond movies. Case I point, this gem where Williams faces off against 007 himself pierced Brosnan to vie for the affections of Forrest Gump's mom's heart. There are so many more clues to this being a 007 classic as well. They are in San Francisco where The Rock took place. It was movie number 121 we watched. So, in The Rock, Connery plays Bond after being abducted and left for dead by M16. Also, Williams imitates Connery and makes fun of Brosnan. Classic. Also directed by Christopher Columbus of Home Alone 1 and 2, Kevin in New York, fame and Harry Potter fame. He also came ashore at the end of Apocalypto. Haven't watched that one yet. I'm just going to let that one sink in for a moment here. I thought this next review was a very well-worded viewpoint that may help you determine if you would like to give Mrs. Doubtfire a rewatch. Chad B. said, I saw this back when it came out, and it was okay. I was never a big Robin Williams guy. He was good as the genie, but most films he is just a bit too much. Watching this movie again, now as an adult, I liked it a lot more than I did as a preteen. I understood a lot of the adult humor I am sure I missed before. It had a nice message about divorcing parents that I'm sure resonated with a lot of kids. I like how they didn't make the new guy, Pierce Brosnan, out to be a bad guy. It was an interesting, more adult tale than I was expecting, a lot better than I remember, 3 out of 5 stars. 
I think that echoes my own sentiment of surprise upon rewatching this movie. So if you are on the fence about rewatching this movie or introducing it to your kids, I think I can speak for Chad B. and myself in saying, you should. Unfortunately, there are few bad reviews to pick from, and the only one that might be somewhat funny was even longer than that review by Greg M. and nowhere near as funny, confusing, astonishing, whatever Greg's review was. This one couldn't compete, and it's long as hell, so let's move on instead and get to the walkthrough of the movie. If you would like to skip ahead, I have timestamps listed in the description of the episode. Hey dude, sorry, it's me again. I was just wondering, could you tell me more about the movie? Mrs. Doubtfire opens up to Daniel, played by Robin Williams, while he's at work. He is a voice artist working on a cartoon. Something I didn't notice as a kid, the voice that Daniel uses for one of the characters on the cartoon show is essentially the voice that he ends up using as Mrs. Doubtfire. It's just delivered in a lower, more masculine tone. A cup of garlic, a twist of parakeet, eat your heart out, Julia Child. In the cartoon show, a character is smoking and Daniel ad-libs some anti-smoking dialogue. The showrunner informs Daniel that he needs to stick to the script or get out. Then I've got to do what I've got to do. Daniel stands up for his beliefs and he leaves the studio. Now, funnily enough, this is a kid's movie and everyone in the studio is smoking. It's a bit of a contradiction. Lou, millions of kids see this cartoon. It's like sending each one of them a packet of cigarettes and saying, light up. This opening scene establishes Daniel's character as a socially conscious adult who cares about children and the messages that they receive from programming directed towards them. That will be very relevant for his character in this movie. For those who may not have been alive in the 90s, there was a changing of the guard in terms of society's views on smoking, which had been widely accepted and even encouraged in decades prior. to school to pick up his children, arriving just as they are boarding the bus. Prior to informing them of his presence, he takes a moment to observe them, and a smile comes across his face, establishing his adoration for his children. Then his children react in kind when they see him with excitement. All right, got a surprise for you. Two strippers. Oh, please. Two strippers? Ah, <gasps> oh, boy. Party? Yes! No. Yes? No parties. Mom said you couldn't have one because you were a card. Through the dialogue, we very quickly learn more about everyone in the family. A. This is not the first time Daniel has quit or been fired from a job. B. His son is a cool dude and it's his birthday. C. His eldest daughter is a goody two-shoes. D. His youngest daughter is a daddy's girl. E. Daniel isn't afraid to skirt around his wife's rules behind her back undermining her authority, which as the movie goes along, we will find out has created many a messes for his wife, Miranda, to clean up after a long day at work, mentally and physically. Mom's not going to be home for another four hours, is she? <laughs> In a possible bit of movie magic, considering we must assume that Daniel had not planned to quit his job, Daniel has a marvelous birthday set up for his son. Animals of all sorts and friends aplenty have been invited. 
it might be important to note that they appear to live in San Diego and they definitely are not in the suburbs. So bringing a petting zoo into this environment is a wee bit irresponsible, which, if you haven't gathered it by now, is definitely a quality we can attach to Daniel. A rather upset neighbor lady shoes a rabbit out of her perfectly pruned garden and runs into her house to give the responsible adult of the household a call. Here we are introduced to Miranda. She is in a very corporate building, either heading a team meeting or consulting with some clients. Her boss interrupts to inform her that he received a call from an old acquaintance of Miranda's, Stuart Dunmire. Stuart Dunmire? Mm -hmm. It's clear she's a bit flustered when hearing his name. Stuart may be an old crush or an old flame, and he's done very well for himself. He needs the services of her company. It's clear he'd be a great client for them, and he has specifically requested Miranda. At this point, Miranda receives the phone call from the uppity neighbor. All of these events occur in the first seven and a half minutes of the movie. It's really a marvelously paced opening to the movie, which establishes everyone's characters very well, and it also sets up several important things for the movie. Miranda arrives to her house with a police officer who is there writing a few citations. The base is a rockin', so there is a noise ordinance being broken, as well as it being illegal to have all of these animals in the city limits. And to top it off, a goat has helped itself to some lunch. You ate my begonias! It goes without saying, Miranda is rightfully upset. Party's over. Miranda and Daniel are in the midst of a verbal spat when the tipping point has been reached and Miranda announces it's over. Immediately, Daniel has a major shift in tone as he pleads and attempts to reason with her. It becomes clear that they haven't been on the same page for some time. Daniel still loves her, but she does not share the same sentiment anymore. This is not the moment she came to that realization, but it is the moment that Daniel realized it. And in that moment, Robin Williams' dramatic abilities as an actor shine through as his heartbreak is palpable. A character we only met 12 minutes prior is able to pull at the audience's heartstrings better than most movies after getting to know the character for an entire 80 minutes. Great acting, but that's also a credit to excellent writing. The first seven minutes of the movie are excellently paced and packed with little character moments that go a long ways. In the next scene, we are introduced to Daniel's brother, who does special effects work. Specifically, he appears to have a specialty in making masks that can be worn to completely alter characters' faces in movies. It's also evident that Daniel is in denial about his marriage ending. He hasn't accepted that it is over yet. The next scene is the court hearing for the divorce. Sole custody is awarded to Miranda with limited visitation rights for Daniel. Your Honor, please. I mean, every Saturday, it's one day a week. That's not enough. I have to be with my children. It's not a question, really. I mean, I have to be with them, sir, please. I know it seems like a lot, but for me, it's not enough, really. I haven't been away from them for more than one day since the day they were born. While Daniel gives his little speech, the camera cuts over to Miranda a couple of times as you can see the concern and pain that she is going through. She has empathy for Daniel. She isn't heartless, and she knows how much the children mean to him. However, she doesn't say anything. Mr. Hillard, I would like to add that this ruling is only temporary. Oh, good. I will assign a court liaison to oversee your case, and there will be a continuance of these proceedings in 90 days. 
I'm giving you three months, Mr. Hillard. Thank you. As the judge gives Daniel certain goals that he needs to accomplish, we hit the 16-minute mark of the film. That's a perfect first act, as well as a wonderful job from the directing and the cinematography throughout. Little decisions like showing Miranda's reaction shots while Daniel gives his speech are really effective and efficient ways to help tell a more complete story. Three months in which to get a job, keep it, and create a suitable home. If this proves to be a possibility for you, I will consider a joint custody arrangement when we reconvene. The first act comes to a conclusion while the second act gets kicked off as Daniel says goodbye to his children and shares a moment with each. It is more character building. This scene is mostly for the children, so we can see where they are at and how they are each separately handling things. Speaking of character, we get introduced to Daniel's court liaison, played by Anne Haney. She was a wonderful casting choice, with perfect displays of disdain and disapproval of Daniel. She is not impressed by him as the movie goes through a montage of character impressions done by Daniel for over 40 seconds straight, giving off the impression that in real time he went on for five minutes straight. He does, however, wrap up the meeting informing her that he is serious about doing what he needs to do in order to get joint custody of his children, which leaves the door open just by a smidgen for an eventual turnaround of the court liaison's approval of Daniel. And you will see that this is a character trait of Daniel's. He can turn around his bad decisions with his charm. Daniel gets a job at boxing and shipping film reels. Once again, he decides to make a joke of things, once again leaving a bad impression with someone important, this time his boss. And you box those cans over there, ship them. Then more of them will come in. You box those, you ship those. Any questions? After you box them. You ship them. Lots of luck, smartass. Stuart comes into Miranda's office. It's the very handsome Pierce Brosnan, and as they talk business, his mind is elsewhere. He'd like to get dinner with Miranda, but Miranda resists. Being at the beginning of a divorce, she is not emotionally there yet, but Pierce is smooth and handles it well, leaving the door open for himself down the road. His character is obviously the very opposite of Daniel. He knows what to say, how to say it, and when to say it. Daniel's first Saturday with the children approaches. He has a tiny apartment, which is poorly decorated. His youngest daughter and his son are polite about things, but his eldest daughter shows some spite towards her dad as she calls the place detestable. Who is the old battle axe? Mom. She's fine. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Daniel also lets out some spite of his own. I to think that she came down with amoebic dysentery piles. What's amoebic dysentery? Oh, it's some kind of infection in your tummy. We get diarrhea forever. Diarrhea forever? Yeah, Enough. your body dries up and you die. No. You die? You don't have to be so graphic with her. I read about it in a science book. Why would you want mommy to die? Both of his daughters, however, provide a sobering presence and reality check for Daniel. And once again, his passion and charm come shining through. But Miranda arrives an hour early to pick up the kids, honking her horn from outside, and Daniel's frustration bubbles over as his anger gets taken out on the kids. He quickly tries to make peace, but it is quiet at the table now as Miranda is forced to come up to retrieve the kids. In some polite but feisty back-and-forth dialogue, Daniel finds out that Miranda is looking for a housekeeper. 
Daniel offers his services and Miranda will, quote-unquote, think about it. But as the youngest daughter utters out, We're his goddamn kids too. His chances at the position dwindle quickly. Realizing this, Daniel thinks quickly and alters the phone number on the ad sheet that will be submitted to the newspaper. He is cooking up some sort of plan? What could it be? A hopeful score takes the soundtrack over as we shift to a variety of scenes as Daniel places call after call to Miranda for the nanny job, implementing a variety of voices and personalities as he spurs his plan into action. It's a really creative idea as Daniel calls under the guise of a bunch of obviously bad choices for the position. He gets Miranda's hopes down first, before calling with a dream nanny increasing the odds that he won't miss with his Mrs. Doubtfire persona. Daniel gets an interview for the nanny position, and it's showtime. Remember Daniel's brother and what he does for a job? What a perfect brother to have. We get another montage-type scene where Daniel tries on several different makeup designs to find the correct match to his alternate persona. Another moment for them to lean into Robin Williams' style of comedy. We see the full-on Mrs. Doubtfire for the first time as she appears for her interview, a classic reveal as Miranda opens the door. Mrs. Doubtfire kills the interview, and they did a great job with the writing in this scene to continue to push character moments and develop a very well-layered story. As Mrs. Doubtfire arrives home, the court liaison is arriving for her first checkup with Daniel, which he had forgotten about. This, of course, brings about a comedic set piece that once again serves a purpose for the story, while also being a vehicle to show off Robin Williams' strengths as a chaotic impersonator. The script is also over-the-top clever in this scene. Okay, sit at home, I'll be right back. He'll be back. I'll go get him. Don't be afraid, I'll be right there. Don't worry. Danny! Danny, boy, where are you? Oh, here, here he is, dear. I found him. Danny, there's a Mrs. Selner here to see you. Oh, is she here? Yes, dear, she is. Oh, Mrs. Selner, I just got out of the shower. I think you'll be very pleased with me. I've been through some really interesting changes, and I'm becoming a new man and a model father. He'll be right there. He's just changing, dear. For context, these next two lines occur as Mrs. Doubtfire removes her bra, and the second portion of this is perfectly timed with the reveal of his fat suit's breasts. Yes, I want to keep you abreast of some of the changes in my career. There have been two big developments. The use of comedic timing as he gets changed from Mrs. Doubtfire into Daniel continues. It is comedy that both adults and children can enjoy because it's very on the nose, but it's also ingenious. As Mrs. Doubtfire, Daniel takes his persona seriously. He is strict with the children in a way that he is not as their father. He may be playing a role, but he is also learning how to be an adult. I'm sure the intent of the writers is that he doesn't realize the metamorphosis that he is going through. More so, he just doesn't want to lose the time with his children, so he's playing it smart and fully invested in his role as Mrs. Doubtfire. The eldest daughter and Mrs. Doubtfire have a moment, once again, the story pushing itself along piece by piece. This is followed by another montage. It was the 90s. This time we are treated to the wonderful Aerosmith tune, Dude Looks Like a Lady. 
This is a two-hour movie that relies on story and comedy. I think the decision to have two breaks through the use of montages in the middle of the movie, just 10 minutes apart, was smart. There's essentially two second acts that get set up, so this helps to meld things together while resetting both the story and the audience's batteries. Obviously, it's impossible to have two second acts, so let me clear that up. What it really is is that there is a lot this movie covers, and since they wanted a cohesive story, it's told in waves. We have Mrs. Doubtfire as Mrs. Doubtfire to all, which shows Daniel's growth as a responsible adult and parent. Then we have the storyline of Miranda and Stuart, which at this point in the movie is kicking off as they go out for a date, which is setting up Daniel's relationship growth. He is still in denial of the separation. We also have Daniel's actual job, his career, where his passion and talents are being wasted. Then there is Mrs. Doubtfire and Miranda's relationship, which is Daniel's growth and understanding of where things went wrong in their relationship, and it's even a little deeper than that. And lastly, we have the story of Daniel's relationship with his children, which is at a fragile point post-separation. Just a short bit ago, I confusingly stated that we have Mrs. Doubtfire as Mrs. Doubtfire, but now we have Mrs. Doubtfire as Daniel, too, because at this point in the movie, his son has just walked in on him peeing, standing up. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Chris, wait. is up. The eldest two children now know Miss Doubtfire's secret. The youngest is a blabbermouth so she can't find out. Sometimes I just, I can't help myself. What? In the next scene, we learn that the current individual on screen for one of the children's entertainment and educational programs at the studio that Daniel works at is very boring and lacks any kind of passion. Daniel stops by and he talks to his boss's boss, unknowingly at first, in a moment where Daniel builds some positive rapport with the big boss. This is followed up by a good but exposition-filled scene where Mrs. Doubtfire and Miranda have a heart-to-heart, and this is why we needed our batteries recharged moments earlier. Following that is a family day at the pool with both Mrs. Doubtfire and Pierce Brosnan. Let's go, kids. Swim time. Mrs. Doubtfire indulges in a beer or four. Daniel gets a chance to spy on Pierce and listen in on a conversation, where in most movies we would find out that Pierce is a piece of shit person who is using Miranda and hates the kids. However, he is just a man who's reached a point in his life where he is ready to settle down, and he actually really likes Miranda and her children. That said, he does have some rather unkind words to say about Daniel. Oh, what about their real father? What can I say, Ron? The guy's a loser.
The studio is empty and Daniel can't help himself. Dinosaurs for that boring kids show are laid out on the table and Robin Williams does what Robin Williams does. Hi boys and girls. Today we'll be talking about dinosaurs. It's a dinosaurus line! Da, 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 da. And please welcome the king! Dun, dun, dun. The head man, who we spoke to earlier, also happens to walk by and observes from a distance. He is impressed. Daniel has earned himself a meeting over dinner. Next Friday, Bridges Restaurant, 7 o'clock sharp. The setup for our movie's big finale has begun. We see Daniel having a much nicer Saturday dinner with his children this time around. Miranda not only didn't honk from the street, but she knocked at the door instead of barging in like the first time. His house is decorated and in order. Heck, even himself and Miranda are having a civilized conversation. Once again, he asks for a chance to see the children more, but he's created a great nanny who's done wonders for the family. We're all doing so great. Hmm. Sounds like an amazing woman. Too good to be true. (laughs) Yes. Miranda is trying to pick out a dress to wear, and I think you will see it's clear that Daniel is getting bolder with his alternate persona here. What's the occasion? It's my birthday. Oh! Stu's taking me out to dinner. Oh! Neither. Neither? They're both too brazen, dear. They cry harlot, really. I mean, the red one is traditional color for streetwalkers, dear, and the black one is far too short. I hope you waxed. They both say to me, I'm easy, and you don't want that, dear. You want to be Kilimanjaro on your first date, inaccessible. Why buy the car when you can get the milk for free? The camera cuts to his eldest daughter, who's also in the room to help Miranda decide on a dress, and you see a wonderful reaction shot of her holding back from saying something like, Dad, that's not nice, while also understanding exactly what's going on. That look is followed by another look shortly later as the kids are asked to decide between the two dresses and a much more modest dress picked out by Mrs. Doubtfire. This time, the eldest is shooting darts at her dad to zip it. Stu has invited you and the children to join us. Oh, how lovely. One big happy family. I wouldn't miss that for the world. should be smashing good fun. Oh, I'm so glad. When does this enchanted evening take place? Friday night, 7 o'clock. And guess what? They are also going to Bridges Restaurant for dinner. The scene for Act 3 has now been fully set. Has Daniel finally overextended himself? There is an entire half hour left as the third act sets in, and we arrive at Bridges Restaurant on Friday at 7. Here we go. The topic of smoking comes up again with Daniel in a moment of poetry where the movie rhymes. And then that was... Anakin, you know, kind of duplicating the Luke Skywalker role, but you see the echo of where it all is going to go. Instead of destroying the Death Star, he destroys the ship that controls the robots. Again, it's like poetry, so if they rhyme, Mm -hmm. every stanza kind of rhymes with the last one. Hopefully it'll work. It did not, but... Thank you for the transition, Mr. George Lucas. Speaking of seeing an echo of where it's all going to go... Remember earlier when Daniel had to switch back and forth between Mrs. Doubtfire and Daniel? Well, here we go again. Only this time, it'll be bigger and better. 
The movie goes off the rails at this point. There isn't a soul in the world who would attempt to pull this scene off, but the movie has earned the right for us to go along with the ride without questioning it too much. Of course, there are many comedic moments as Daniel goes back and forth between the tables with his boss and his family while having to make costume changes between. In which bathroom does a man go in when he is coming out a woman? Or a woman go in when he is coming out a man? In all the haste and constant changes, will one remember to put on or take off all of the appropriate makeup each time? Will one remember which table they should be sitting at? Will one remember what voice to use? Will one be able to go unseen by his family? The answer to all those questions is not necessarily. Will one find a way to sabotage the dinner of their wife's date with a boatload of cayenne pepper? Most definitely. They do a nice job of not overdoing the dinner scene. They could have really overextended things and gone for too much humor, but after a pretty well-paced 50 minutes, the gig is up. See you soon. The next scene is the follow-up custody hearing. Of course, Daniel's behavior could cause an issue with the court. He gives another heartfelt speech, and similarly to the last time, his words strike a chord with Miranda. However, the court finds issue with his behavior and gives full custody to Miranda, and now his visitation on Saturdays are to be supervised. Once again, Miranda doesn't stand up to defend Daniel. I think this was a poor choice by not having her stand up for Daniel but I think they wrote themselves in a corner on this one. If she does stand up to defend him, wrapping up some other storylines and sending the message they wish to send with the movie would be infinitely harder, and they do throw in a line to explain why she doesn't say anything a little bit later in the movie. Miranda is back to searching for a nanny, and funnily enough, the real applicants are no better than the fake ones that Daniel created in the beginning. Everyone in the family, including Miranda, misses Mrs. Doubtfire. And in that moment, they hear a familiar voice come from the TV. Remember how I said that Daniel might mix up which table he sits at depending on which outfit he was in? Well, he accidentally sat down at the table with the boss of the TV station as Mrs. Doubtfire, but used his own voice quick to his feet. Daniel attempted to sell the boss man on the idea of Mrs. Doubtfire as the host for the TV show. And it works. The family gathers around the TV, and in a classic Disney movie moment, they all laugh and smile while they watch. Some time has clearly passed now, and Miranda shows up on set to catch Daniel after filming. They have a serious adult conversation. Things get heated for a moment or two, but Miranda didn't come for a fight. And in the 100th moment of rhyme in this movie, we get another door reveal of the new babysitter. Only this time, it's Daniel. The movie wraps up with some words from Mrs. Doubtfire showing that Daniel has finally come to terms with his separation. I'll play those words shortly in case anyone needs a reminder or is going through something in life that those words might help you out with. But first, I'll explain the relevance, and I'm sure a large part of why this screenplay was written. 
Around the year 1980, divorce rates hit an all-time high, and they only went down a little bit through the year 2000. There were a lot of kids being raised in single-parent households, or sharing time between parents, or even going through the exact situation that the kids do in this movie. Society began to notice the impact this was having on kids. At one point in time, it was very popular to call these households and those being raised in these households as kids coming from a broken home, which obviously evokes a rather negative connotation. Parents separating is a tough enough concept for kids to understand as it is, and on top of that, many kids would get bullied due to society's negative attitude towards non-two-parent households. It was important for kids and everyone to understand that divorce is okay and can even result in better environments, but society had a hard time adapting to that ideology. Thus, these final remarks. Oh, my dear Katie. You know, some parents, when they're angry, they get along much better when they don't live together. They don't fight all the time and they can become better people and much better mummies and daddies for you. And sometimes they get back together. And sometimes they don't, dear. And if they don't, don't blame yourself. Just because they don't love each other anymore doesn't mean that they don't love you. Now, there are all sorts of different families, Kitty. Some families have one mommy, some families have one daddy or, or two families. Some children live with their uncle or aunt, some live with their grandparents, or some children live with foster parents. And some live in separate homes and separate neighborhoods in different areas of the country, and they may not see each other for days, weeks, months, or even years at a time. But if there's love, dear, those are the ties that bind. And you'll have a family in your heart. That was totally dope. What do you say that we get down in technical, if you know what I mean? Now it's time for the technical ratings, starting with the writing. I think I brought up quite a few things that I liked about the writing through the walkthrough, so in short, to sum much of that up, I thought this was a really well-written movie. There is actually quite a lot going on for such a simple plot. And I saw one critic's review mention something about the simplicity of the plot and equated that to a basic story as well, but plot and story are not the same thing. This movie has layers to the story, and they wove everything together very naturally. It is also well-paced for something that must have been a bit tough to piece together, and I'll get right into some of how they did that in a brief moment, but first, I'd like to mention that I watched the scenes that were left on the cutting room floor for this movie, and I think that the editor and whoever else may have had input in those decisions made the correct decisions. They could have focused more on some ludicrous side plots or extended some of the comedic scenes or had more bombastic Mr. Mom-style comedic set pieces, but out of a half hour of footage, there was only one scene that I thought would have been beneficial to the movie. 
It is a spelling bee scene for those who may watch those cutscenes. However, the end of that scene would have ruined some of the story and it wouldn't have made any sense to have only part of that scene included. You can tell they shot two or three potential different types of movies. So shout out to the editing and that brings me to some of that pacing which once again is helped by the editing. The movie doesn't forget to tie up loose ends. At approximately the 50 minute mark in the movie, Daniel gets a replacement for his mask which got ruined and then they show him rocking out at work as he clocks out. During this the soundtrack kicks in and it's almost like a little intermission. This movie totes the line with being a bit too much at times, so I think it was wise to let the audiences sit back and relax for a moment. But the awesome thing is, during this, the audience isn't receiving useless information. They push the story forward logically, which helps to keep the audience immersed in the movie. They remind the audience of his other job, which is a part of the story. It's a story thread that gets put on the back burner but you don't want your audience to start to wonder what happened with his other job, nor do you want the audience to be taken out of the story when the time comes to continue that narrative. I'll wrap up my thoughts on the writing by stating that for such a ridiculous plot, this movie is much more realistic than you remember, and much of that credit goes to the writing. Out of 10, I'm going to give the writing an 8.5. I would possibly go higher except for two things based on what I saw in the cut scenes. The first is that I think the actors did plenty of ad-libbing and I also think they wrote a script that may have been two and a half or three hours long, which would have led me to believe this was slightly overwritten and that the other elements of filmmaking may have masked or made the writing appear to be better than it was. However, I'm not giving editing a special bump, so I'm giving the writing the benefit of the doubt with my score. That was an eight and a half out of ten. Now let's take a look at the cinematography. Unfortunately, I believe the distributors of the DVD that I own changed the original image ratio of the movie in order to make it widescreen because there was at least one time where something occurred at the bottom of the screen where I know we are supposed to actually be able to see it occur and we couldn't. Similarly, the tops of heads were cut off awkwardly, but luckily this movie was well composed, so... Almost always the action and where my focus should be is happening center frame. I just sort of dropped that casually, but the big positive there is how well composed the shots were. You can tell an experienced director was behind this movie. Who might that have been? Why, who else but Christopher Columbus? We've definitely heard that name a few times over the past year for several movies. I don't really have any specifics to mention though. It was just a well shot movie. I'm going to give the cinematography a 7.5 out of 10. You can tell thought and talent went into the making of this movie. It is just simple, textbook, matter-of-fact, well-executed stuff. So let's move on to the sound design. This movie features both a score and a track. As far as the score goes, it is simple. And I think it's just like one main tune that carries throughout the entirety of the movie. It isn't bad, but it's not good. And on at least one occasion, I didn't feel that it fit the emotion of what was occurring on screen. I also recall one occasion where it went out of its way to fit the emotion. As far as the main sound of the score, that too fits the movie's tone. So in that sense, it was average plus. When it comes to the soundtrack, they chose songs which were overtly on the nose, so much so that they aren't creative choices, they're just 
good songs that fit the story of the scene. They definitely spent some money on a few of the rights to the songs they chose, which probably took some convincing when it came to the money handlers. I would say these songs were above average and used well enough. There are a lot of points where Robin Williams mumbles stuff under his breath, and those are easy enough to make out. The sound mixing was good. I had no issues with volume level and things occurring on screen. Felt of an appropriate volume for what I should expect to hear had I been viewing everything in person. This is the type of movie that it may have been tempting to go cartoony with the sound effects, and I think it was a wise decision not to, given the tone of the film. I don't recall anything standing out, and that is typically a good sign, unless I missed something weird or something amazing. So once again, just solid work, top to bottom, with this production so far. I'm going to give sound a 7.2 out of 10. The score of the movie really weighed down the score a fair bit, but let's keep this house in order and keep moving along. Next up is the acting. I think the casting choices were excellent all around, and everyone did an excellent job. Could I nitpick with the son and maybe even the eldest daughter in the movie? Possibly, but the son doesn't really have much to do in the movie, and the eldest daughter offset anything I could nitpick with other things that I could praise, that I have praised. The youngest daughter is the actress who played Matilda and was in the remake of Miracle on 34th Street. I believe her name is Mara Wilson. She was a wonderful child actress, and she nailed it in this movie as well. I think I spoke enough about Robin Williams and gave him some praise in the walkthrough. His wife, who was played by Sally Field, did a great job with her role, and similarly, Pierce Brosnan did what he does. I don't know that there is anything to complain about in the acting. Is it a tour de force of acting? Of course not. But not every movie needs over-the-top performances where the actors can show off their marvelous skills. The fact of the matter is, I bought into everyone in their roles. The family felt like a family, and in the moments that were needed, the actors utilized their dramatic chops to sell the emotion. Actually, I am going to speak a little bit more on Robin Williams, and this is part of why I think this role was specifically written for him. This character feels like it is Robin Williams in real life. In another universe, this is what an everyday Robin Williams life may have been. Heck, maybe in this universe. And the decision to make him a voice actor flowed perfectly with what he ends up doing in creating this alternate persona of Mrs. Doubtfire. As I talk, I keep wanting to go higher and higher with this score. I'm going to give the acting a 9.35 out of 10. You can call it cheap because, oh, Robin Williams just played himself. How is that challenging? And I would say that's a rubbish argument because A, unless you knew Robin Williams behind the curtains, you simply cannot say exactly what or who he was. And B, I think it's cheap not to give credit where credit is due. And I just explained why I think the credit was due and why I don't think a performance has to be some magical tour de force in order to be perfect acting. So yeah, 9.35 out of 10. Some of that score comes from the perfect casting. Can't downgrade the movie for finding the right people. Let's move on to production design. Similar to the acting and the cinematography, I think they just got things right. The folks who seek out locations for filming found excellent locations. Any sets that were done were very well done. Once again, they clearly had an exceptional team working on the production of this movie. 
I don't know that it's really a knock on anything. The clothing is very 90s, which for a family movie that takes place in the 90s makes sense, and it's a fun little nostalgic trip for everyone in the future. The costume work for Mrs. Doubtfire not only fits wonderfully as a fully believable character with what Robin Williams created, but also as someone who could pass as unidentifiable by their own family at point-blank range. They don't ignore that there is a likeness, but it is passable enough to believe that he could fool his family. I don't know what else to say. It feels like a lived-in world, and things feel appropriate and real, which is exactly what they were going for. There's the snooty neighbor lady with the perfect garden. There's taking public transportation, and the family lives in the city limits in a nicely maintained home, but, as a part of a trade-off, maybe a bit of a lower-end car for the mister who can't hold the job. Hmm. I'm going to nitpick to get the score as low as I can. So I mentioned the lower-end car. But there is a line in the movie that the car is only two years old. Actually, it may be in the outtakes of the movie, but screw it, we'll count it either way. Anyways, the vehicle sounds like it's got an engine that has 150,000 miles on it. The house might be a tad bit expensive for one person's salary, but in the same right, it's very possible that Miranda's salary would have been high enough, especially in the early 90s, even in San Francisco. I think it is definitely easy to think that Robin Williams' character could not afford the apartment that he lives in while separated. However, I tend to believe that Miranda may have helped him with that expense considering the situation he has dropped into, but that isn't said in the movie, so we'll count that against it a little bit. I wanted to knock the public pool for appearing to be a private pool, and so I rewatched that scene quickly, and it is definitely shown that the family was invited by Stuart to a privately owned club's pool that he has a membership to. That's all I could really come up with. I am going to give the production design an 8.85 out of 10. They hit a home run in a ballpark with a shallow infield. It's pretty flawless. So let's move on to my enjoyability factor. This is a rating that I take into account, which sort of ignores the technical stuff and just says, is the movie enjoyable? I, of course, base it on my own enjoyment, but I also try to factor in how enjoyable I think the average audience member would find the movie. I think the movie is very enjoyable. It is not the most enjoyable, and although it doesn't necessarily feel long, at two hours it may have been best served to cut out something. The only issue is, cut out what? The most easily removed culprit I can think of is the love interest of Miranda, but truly that is a part of the story that might really be missed, and if they keep it but cut out scenes like the pool scene, then it's not fleshed out, and that's what I appreciate so much about this movie. They really fleshed out what feels like a complete story that could happen to anyone. And little extra details that get enough screen time, like Stuart, are a big part of that completeness. So it is a super minor doc only, because I know that for some, the movie is a bit long and tedious. They could have trimmed the ending down a tad, but only by a minute or maybe two. I'm not going to lie, this next thing is mostly here because I had nowhere else to put it. There are two moments in the movie with a bus driver who hits on Daniel as Mrs. Doubtfire, and I tend to think this was a subtle progressive move from the creators of the movie to help men understand how uncomfortable it can be for women when men objectify them. And I think this movie does a pretty nice job of touching on a few social issues without bringing anything to the forefront and 
coming off as preachy. There is the revealing of the movie's message at, um, and intent at the very end, which I covered, but that is done tactfully and makes total sense within the movie. The humor is wonderful. I'm pretty sure I talked about this in the walkthrough, but they did an excellent job of having jokes for both kids and adults, and almost all of it lands. It's also mostly subtle humor. For the most part, it's not a joke and a punchline type stuff. It's just fluid, funny things that occur and are said as the movie goes along. And the last thing before I plop out a rating is that there are a lot of brilliant little moments or details which are used to prevent similar scenarios from going stale. For instance, let's use the scene when the court liaison appears at Daniel's house unexpected. The second time that he goes to change from one outfit to another, they have two kids in the apartment across the street who are looking on and laughing. It's a small thing, but it keeps the gag fresh. All audiences of all ages can enjoy this movie. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. It is a wee bit sappy. Which brings us to the last rating. How good is the movie in comparison to other family comedies? We don't get too many of these types of movies anymore, so I largely am comparing this to the family comedies of the 90s. I looked through a large list of movies, and of course there are many that were great. There were plenty of flops and there are plenty that have their own flavor that some love and some hate. I think one thing that stands out to me is how well this movie has aged, so it's definitely top tier in that scenario. If I broaden the scope and include all family comedies, which includes all of the animated stuff from the past two decades, I'm looking at you, Pixar, we take a step down a bit. I think Mrs. Doubtfart... Doubtfart? I think Mrs. Doubtfire is near the top of the second tier, or at the bottom of the top tier, depending on personal tastes, but it's definitely in that range. I think it deserves to be right up there, near the sandlots of the world. So I'll give it a 7.7 .7 out of 10 in comparison to all family comedies, keeping in mind that I'm putting a little bit of an emphasis on the decade of the 90s and in comparison to similar live-action movies. I have little doubt that most young kids today would enjoy this movie every bit as much as young kids did 30 years ago. So let's recap those scores. This is definitely going to be a bit higher than I had anticipated. Writing. I gave an 8.5 out of 10. All these will be out of 10. Cinematography, a 7.5. Sound design, 7.2. The acting, a 9.35. Production design received an 8.85. The enjoyability rating was given a 7. And when comparing Mrs. Doubtfire to all like movies, I gave it a 7.7 .7 out of 10. Which means the official podcast score for Mrs. Doubtfire is 8.014, so 8.01 .01 out of 10. What can I say? I think they did a wonderful job making this movie. Give it a rewatch and I'd love to hear what things you agreed with or disagreed with uh, me about. Let's finish the show and find out some interesting facts about Mrs. Doubtfire. It's time for some totally tubular facts! The first interesting fact relieves any doubt I had about how well the Mrs. Doubtfire costume altered Robin Williams' appearance. Robin Williams' own son did not recognize him in his Mrs. Doubtfire outfit until he started speaking. During the scene when Mrs. Selner comes to inspect Daniel's apartment and Daniel slash Mrs. Doubtfire is serving her tea, the icing on his or her face is melting off. This was not intentional. The heat from the set lights melted the icing that was on his face, and Robin Williams improvised the bulk of that scene. 
also tied right in with this fact. Originally, an avocado was going to be used instead of meringue, but it made Robin Williams look like a monster. I think the next fact also proves something I stated earlier about how many different cuts they had made with this movie. According to the director, Christopher Columbus, Robin Williams improvised so much that there were PG, PG PG-13, R, and NC-17 edits of the film, though always intended to be released as PG-13. The character Mrs. Doubtfire was first performed by Robin Williams at a show Andy Kaufman did at Carnegie Hall. Williams pretended to be Kaufman's grandmother. The makeup of Mrs. Doubtfire took about four and a half uh, hours each day. There are several scenes with the uppity neighbor that involve interactions with Daniel as Mrs. Doubtfire, which didn't make the final cut of the film, but I highly recommend giving those cut scenes a watch if you get the chance. Robin Williams said he made the movie to make up for not getting to spend enough time with his kids. Bridges Restaurant is a real North California restaurant. I'm losing my tongue. The second highest grossing film of 1993, just behind Jurassic Park 1993, which if I recall, Mrs. Doubtfire was the second highest grossing film of 1993, just behind Jurassic Park, which if I recall is quite the feat. I believe 1993 was a pretty big year in film history. Let's find out what else it beat out. The Fugitive, Schindler's List, The Firm, Indecent Proposal, Cliffhanger, Sleepless in Seattle, Philadelphia, The Pelican Brief, Free Willy, Groundhog Day, Cool Runnings. Honestly, the list goes on and on, so I'll stop there. To give you an idea how, how deep the roster in 1993 was, The Sandlot ranked 50th in the box office gross earnings. Good thing this is coming to an end soon. I cannot speak. I actually just got done recording all of my Halloween 2, which is really long. So that's part of the reason for all of my slip-ups at this point. According to some rumors, it has been suggested part of the story was originally intended to be a potential plot of a film version of the television series Home Improvement in 1991 at the time. With the story behind Tim getting divorced from Jill and being forced to pretend to be a 60-year-old nanny in order to spend time with the kids. It's been said the reason for this not happening was that Tim Allen and Patricia Richardson hated the idea, plus didn't feel Home Improvement needed a film version. I'll wrap this up with the fact that Mrs. Doubtfire says dear a total of 101 times throughout the movie. Thanks once again for joining me. I am not super active on Twitter, but I do post things from time to time. You can follow me at Extreme Movie. Of course, reviews are always helpful, and I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Dear. Oh, snap, dude. That was like a hella good show. We totally hope that you had a banging time as well. And we'd appreciate it if you followed us on any or all of our social media. You can even donate to help us improve. Alright, what the fuck?